0: Welcome back to episode 66 of the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. Today in the podcast, we're going to listen to a speech by a gentleman by the name of Dr. Duke Pesto, and he's going to speak about Common Core and how what's happening with this Common Core education, which is dictated by the federal government, kind of like the Affordable Care Act. You know, we all know what that did to the cost and the quality of care that we get now how it's ruining lives, but this common core, what it's doing, it's dumbing down our our youth, our children, and it's been taking place over the past, let's say 30 years, 20 years, and it's just getting worse and worse. The federal government is dictating what uh, our, our children are being taught, the method they're being taught in, and basically all they're being taught is how to take tests, common tests. And it do, it really uh is against critical thinking. So the children can't do critical thinking and it's, it's horrendous. The children today just, they don't have a chance, you know, between the vaccines and the chemtrails and this common core and this thing coming up now, that's universal income, universal basic income. It's, It's ridiculous. Now the, one of the big proponents, one of the big people behind this common core is Bill Gates. And he's funding a lot of people and bribing a lot of uh, people to get this through. Well, it's been through, but to, to really promote it and propagate it even more. They want to propagate it throughout the globe. Back in the day, you know, a, a teacher had control over the curriculum of a child. And what child is common? As, as, as Duke Pesto says, none, do you feel that your child is common? Every child is unique, and that's that's what it is to be human and to be an individual. It's, it's, it's for a teacher to make the evaluation on a child by child, case by case basis, and stimulate, you know, a child, you know, work on his weaknesses, build up his weaknesses, and you know, influence him on his strengths. So there's a lot to this speech. So I, I highly suggest you listen to it very carefully because it does involve our children. And like I said, what what Common Core is doing to the educational system is what the Affordable Care Act did to our medical system. And it's the government just. Just making profit. When they take these tests, you know, there's a company that companies get paid on these tests, on this testing and the processing of the testing and the grading of the testing. So basically, you know, our children are being, their educational system is being commoditized and traded on Wall Street. It's ridiculous, man. So we're going to get into this. Um, Dr. Duke Pesto, like I said, I highly recommend you give it a very good listen and share it with your friends. It's gotten to the point where this common core teaching and mathematics i saw it written somewhere multiple places that two plus two might equal five depending on how you got your answer which means that they've completely stripped reality and truth out of the education system and just replaced it with propaganda brainwashing and toxic thinking and, and and profit and wall street and and, and just commoditizing our children so at some point you know you have to really look into this and there's a lot of people they they homeschool their children and this is the reason why to avoid the vaccines and to avoid this this uh toxic educational system so i've spoken enough um let's get into this
1: I was, uh, the the, uh, Pledge of Allegiance reminded me, a couple days ago, I was teaching at the University of Wisconsin, and the Constitution came up, about 30 English majors, uh, who had been well trained in anti-Americanism, let's just say. And so I, uh, when the Constitution came up in my classroom, I mockingly, very sarcastically took a knee, said, "Am am I allowed to talk about this? And I was so heartened, all 32 of them said, stand up, stand up. So in Wisconsin, the Wisconsin University system, which is remarkably progressive, these kids got the sarcasm, and they said, don't you kneel for that. Right? I was mocking it, of course, mocking the kneeling. But they made me stand up in the classroom, which I thought was fantastic. It was what I was hoping for. But it was a really good moment. It reminded me that um, even amongst uh, our university campuses, even amongst our younger generations, that there are a lot of people who want to see things the right way, who want to, who under, want to understand what made the, the nation so uh, remarkable in many respects. So I was encouraged by that. Uh, what I'm not so encouraged about is the current state of government schools. I call them government schools, not public schools, because, as I'll show you today, we have reached the point where they are no longer public schools. They don't belong to you and me. You and me, the moms and dads who are the primary stakeholders of American public education, uh, who pay the property taxes that keep these schools running, we have almost no say now in what goes on. And so what I'd like to do is start by making this observation. Um, we have to stop fighting Common Core. That sounds odd, because that's what we're here for. But Common Core now has become such a part of our schools that it is part of this I call it sp- part of the specular DNA of what goes on in the classrooms. Uh, states all across the country, including Utah figured out that you didn't like Common Core. So what they did is they rebranded it, right? You have uh, Utah standards, right? But that's 99% Common Core. They just, the state agencies, it's happened in Wisconsin, where I've got a Republican governor, Republican Senate, Republican Assembly, Republican Supreme Court, and arguably one of the more conservative governors in Scott Walker, and they did the same thing. So nobody talks about Common Core anymore. The schools don't. The superintendents don't. What they talk about is we have our own standards. But as you know, right, uh, we have the right as states to choose our curriculum and our standards. But now, thanks to the Common Core machinations, you have to get that approved by the Secretary of Education. In other words, you can pick your own standards, Utah, as long as the feds say it's okay. And that's not local control. So what I want to do today is to tell you what you should be fighting and how to go about it. If indeed Common Core is not just English and math anymore, it's morphed into a way of teaching. And in one word, I'll tell you what I think it is. Uh, this is what I see happening in our government schools. I call it social justice education. I mentioned about the protests, the kneeling, this and that. You think about what's happening in our schools now. 30, 40 years ago, <clears throat> 30, 40 years ago we, when I went to school in the 1970s, when well, I was a little boy in the 1970s, I remember uh, as, as early as third grade, I was learning how to read to write. I was learning basic science. But I was also, I I can see it now, being pushed politically. The primary purpose of the classroom remained 30, 40 years ago, remained education. But there was this politics. I'll give you one quick example. I remember in third grade, third grade, I was about eight years old, having nightmares, nightmares for an entire semester, because we were being told as eight-year-olds that the Ice Age was coming, 1977. The Ice Age is coming. And, I had, and at eight years old, I had no idea to process that. Man-made, we were told men were destroying the planet. And so these, I had this image of a six-mile-high ice uh, glacier that was going to push me and my family into the Pacific Ocean to drown sometime in the next ten days, because that's what my little mind could process. So even then, and you fast-forward 40 years ahead, and now it's global warming, and now they're showing Al Gore's goofy movie to kids in six and, at six and seven and eight years old, And so you see it. But what's changed now? What did Common Core help usher in? I call it social justice education. What used to be subtle undercurrents of politics is now the primary purpose of the classroom. What's going on in our government schools first, first, is socialization of your kids. They're using the classroom. They're using math, English, science. They're using the curriculum to import to your children radical sexualization at younger ages. The entire transgender thing now that's going into elementary schools, uh, you've got uh, the, again, the global warming propaganda hijacking science teaching in middle schools. Uh, you have really, really racy and inappropriate books being read by kids at very young ages. If, if you have been paying any attention to Common Core over the last five years, this is old news. Uh, so what's going on now? And, and now that the, the federal government, for the first time in American history, does have a primary control over our schools, and I'll show you that in a moment, what can we do? First thing I want to do is I want to show you where this came from. Where did we get to the, the, to the place where the federal government and your, your founding fathers made absolutely no provision for government schools because they knew. They knew what they ran away from that kind of centralized educational system, they ran away from that and they knew if you put the government, any government, in charge of educating a nation's children, that government will eventually come to educate those kids for its purposes, not for yours. To the benefit of its federal entity, not for your local communities, your local uh, uh, moms and dads who pay for those property taxes, the local religious traditions, not at all. You remember this guy. Ironically, he just got indicted. This is John Gruber. He's the fellow that gave us one of the main architects of Obamacare. And Gruber, in 2014, after Obamacare was firmly established as the national health care law, he said this very candid thing. You get know, a law which said healthy people are going to pay in. It made explicit that healthy people pay in and sick people get money. It would not have passed. Okay? Just like the people, transparent, lack of transparency is a huge political advantage. And basically, you know, call it the stupidity of the American voter or whatever. But basically, that was really, really critical to getting the thing to pass. If we had told you what was in the health care bill, you wouldn't have liked it. So we didn't tell you. In fact, it was the lack of transparency coming from our... And this guy is unelected. The people doing this across the board are people that we have no representative... uh, authority over. We didn't elect them. Gruber has no political background now he was just indicted for embezzling from the American federal government by overcharging for his common core, for his Obamacare. Say what you will about the National Health Care Law. It was a model of transparent government compared to how they did Common Core. As much as they went out of their way to conceal it, you remember Nancy Pelosi, you have to pass it to know what's in it. The more they overtly lied about it, you'll be able to keep your doctors. This is going to make healthcare cheaper. Still, it had a hearing in the House. It had a hearing in the Senate. It had hearings before the Supreme Court. CNN was doing specials on it, right? None of that happened with how they hijacked your schools. None of it. Your teachers went home one June morning for spring break about six years ago, five years ago. They came back in September and August, and everything had been transformed. All the textbooks were gone. All the old paradigms were gone. All the old tests were removed. Teacher control of the classroom had been circumvented by a set of arbitrary standards and the curriculum that grew up around them all within the space of one or two years. All of it done without any actual consultation of the states, without any actual consultation of real teachers. It was in the schools that had been bought and paid for. And that's why it's been impossible to get rid of it. Before we knew what it was... Lack of transparency, call it the stupidity of the American voter, but we orchestrated it, paid for it, we wrote the tests for it, before we even unveiled it in many regards. That's why it's so difficult, it's proven impossible to get rid of. And so, but how did this happen? The one thing I want you to avoid thinking is that Common Core is the problem because all these problems started with Common Core. Before Common Core and Obama initiative, you had no child left behind, and that was George W. Bush, right? Right? No Child Left Behind was most of what Common Core is anyway. It's one-size-fits-all education. It's outcome-based education. By the way, raise your hand if your kids or grandkids are common. No, they're not. Raise your hand if your kids are standard. No. The premise of all of this, you go back before Obamacare, or go back before Common Core to No Child Left Behind. And just so we're on the record here, that right-winger George Bush, right? Who did he allow to write? his education bill, No Child Left Behind. Do you know? Teddy Kennedy. Let that sink in for a second. George Bush allowed the Kennedy, Senator Kennedy's administration, to completely write the No Child Left Behind legislation. And what was it? It was less control of the classroom by teachers. It was uh, more standardized testing. It was outcome-based education. Well, that's what Common Core is, just bigger and before that, you had Goals 2000 under the Clinton administration. And what was that? It was the same thing. In fact, you go back to 1979, where we created the utterly unnecessary Federal Department of Education. Do you know that the Federal Department of Education has about 5,000 employees? Less than 10% of them have any educational experience whatsoever. It's not teachers running the Department of Education. It's bureaucrats. Not one in ten of the employees of the Department of Education has any educational experience. So what's been going on since 1979? That agency has been using uh, money, American taxpayer dollars, that otherwise would have gone right to the states, and they're funneling it through the Department of Education. So the Department of Education gets to decide who gets it and who doesn't and how much you get and what you get it for. And so guess what's happened for 50 years, 40 years? States have been altering the way they do business to make sure they get the money. The Department of Education doesn't like you teaching this. Don't teach it anymore you'll get more money, that's how we got here. But you gotta go back even further. What I'm trying to suggest to you today is that none of this is an accident. From the very first time an American public school began to function, the people who created it wanted this to happen. Horace Mann is the founder of American government schools. Uh, Up until about 1850, you had no public education whatsoever. Horace Mann decided that he was going to get one put on the map. And in every state in the Union to this day, including Utah, you will find schools named after him, you'll find statues in his honor. Interestingly, these statues don't come down. Statues of people who hijack American liberty and freedom, they don't come down. It's interesting that Horace Mann, when he looked around the world to to find a model for the American government school system, Horace Mann chose the authoritarian Prussian system. Prussia was a region in northwest Germany, Otto von Bismarck, very, very militaristic. In fact, precursors in some respects of the Nazi regime. They took kids from their parents at very young ages. They put them in public boarding houses. They provided health care, dental treatment. They provided all three meals every day, all year round. They educated those kids to become exclusively warriors for the state. In fact as early as 1850 when this began, here's what Horace Mann said about the purpose of his own government school system. After a child has arrived at the legal age for attending school, whether child of noble or of peasant, the only two absolute grounds of exemption from attendance are sickness and death. We who are engaged in the sacred cause of education are entitled to look upon all parents as having given hostages to our cause. Your kids are hostages. It's 1850, right? Your kids are hostages to our cause. And the second most, and by the way, I, I will at the end of this, I'll throw up a slide. I'll give you all these slides for free. I want you to have them. You don't know me very well. You should have all this information. You should verify it. I document where it comes from, but you should take it uh, because most people don't know it. And we've given 600 of these talks now, and nobody, and I have some, some pretty liberal audiences too, and no one's ever come back and said this information is wrong. I've got about four pages of Horace Mann quotes about how the purpose of the public schools is to make parenting our job, not yours. And I think that's one of the main objectives here. The second most important figure in the history of American public schools is John Dewey. John Dewey, in fact, he had more influence on the direction of schools, uh, public schools, than even Horace Mann did. He followed, in fact, the very year that Horace Mann died, the very year that John Dewey was born. He was not a pretend communist John Dewey. He was a card-carrying member of the Communist Party who, in 1917, went to Russia to congratulate Vladimir Lenin on the Bolshevik takeover. Dewey, and I've got dozens of quotes from him too, Dewey was absolutely convinced that the place for communism in America was in the government schools. And so here's one of his quotes. Children who know how to think for themselves spoil the harmony of the collective society that is coming, where everyone will be interdependent. One of the chief gripes about Common Core, mine too, is that it doesn't promote critical thinking. Critical thinking means you expose kids to multiple perspectives. You give them multiple ways of seeing things. You challenge kids both about their, both about their opinions and about standard orthodox opinions. You use the classroom to develop critical thinking in children. Common Core does none of that. It's all one-sided. In fact, it's the most one-sided way we've ever educated our kids. But as early as 1900, Dewey is making the argument here that we don't want critical thinkers. Critical thinkers, people who, kids who know how to think for themselves, spoil the collective harmony that's coming. How about John Dunphy? John Dunphy took the mantle from John Dewey moving forward, and as, as, as recently as 1983, Dewey was the, one of the first signers of the Humanist Manifesto back at the turn of the century. And the Humanist Manifesto was a lot of uh, Marxist, socialist, leading leftist intellectuals signed a document calling for the removal of religion from every aspect of public life and for the schools to become places where politics, sociology, and Marxist economics replace traditional classical education models. As late as 1983, Dewey's disciple John Dunphy said this about the schools, quote, I am convinced... That the battle for humankind, humankind's future, must be waged and won in the public school classroom by teachers who correctly perceive their role as proselytizers of a new faith. The classroom must and will become an arena of conflict between the old and the new, between the rotting corpse of Christianity, together with all its adjacent evils and misery, and the new faith of humanism resplendent with the promise of a world in which the never realized Christian ideal of love thy neighbor will finally be achieved. You can't get people to love each other until you get rid of Christianity, right? And I want to make it very clear from the outset. I'm a 25-year teacher. I am not, I am on the side of teachers, I have about 4,500 letters sitting at my desk in Wisconsin from teachers who have written to me and said, I can't come to your talk today, because if my superintendent sees me there, I might get fired. But off the record, right, please keep doing what you're doing. One of the really cr- um, criminal aspects of what we've done now, as we've continually federalized the schools, is take responsibility away from teachers. Look, in the 19- up until about 1960s, the schools were controlled by the teachers, primarily, A teacher set the standard. She gave exams. She knew the 30 kids sitting in front of her. And she knew what they needed and knew where they started from. The exams, the assignments she made for the kids were the things that were tested. Why did? Why did America become a superpower on the backs of men and women who learned in one-room schoolhouses? It's because the standard was held by the people teaching the children. Then in the late 60s and 70s, the standards got bumped up to the districts. And then in the 80s and 90s, it got bumped up to the states. And now, with Goals 2000, No Child Left Behind and Common Core, it's all being run by the feds. Look, I'll walk back to Wisconsin this afternoon. If you can give me one example of an instance where the federal government took something away from the states and the local communities that they ever gave back when they couldn't do it right. You understand that the farther education gets from the classroom the less con- and you have the for education to work and it's historically been true for 2000 years you need a a disciplined student you need a concerned parent and you need an effective teacher that's it you've got those three things you've got education do you understand now with the rise of what i call fed ed federal education that you are as far away from that unless one day the un were to take over educating your kids and don't think that's such a pipe dream bill gates billionaire who spent about 7 billion of his dollars putting common core in your kids' schools. He's already said, this needs to be a global curriculum. We need one classroom for every student in the world every single day. That's part and parcel of this. That's what this is, and behind a lot of this, unsurprisingly, uh, what do uh, progressive Marxist socialists want? They want globalism, right? Everything you're hearing here so far is this idea that the worst thing we can allow in civilization is parents to be the primary educators, the primary caregivers of their children. That does not go the way of big government. And it's not just educators. How about John Rockefeller, who, like Bill Gates did the last five years, did what in the 1930s? spent billions in modern dollars, billions and billions of dollars to try to transform the way the public schools looked. Here's, one th- here's what he said in ni- the mid-1930s. Interesting, 1933, the very year Hitler took power in Nazi Germany, because what did the Nazis do when they took power? They collectivized the schools this way. They banned homeschooling, they made every kid state war to the state schools. They started pulling kids into their camps and taking them and putting them into boarding houses again, Right, federalizing every aspect of school. That's interesting. There's only one law, one, on the books in, Nazi, in today's Germany, only one, that was there in 1935. And that is the law that is a federal ban on homeschooling. It's the only one that survived. Here's what Rockefeller said during those 1930s. In America, in our dreams... People will yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hands. The present educational conventions, intellectual and character education, will fade from their minds, and unhampered by tradition, we will work our own goodwill upon a grateful and responsive folk. We shall not try to make these people or any of their children into philosophers or men of learning or men of science. The task we set before ourselves is very simple. We will organize children and teach them to do in a perfect way the things that their fathers and mothers are doing in an imperfect way. We will not teach these children to become self-sustaining, critical thinkers. We will not teach them to become entrepreneurs who can look after themselves and their families. Because if you turn out those kind of kids from our schools, they will not need bigger government. Bill Ayers unrepentant terrorist bomber of the Pentagon, weather underground, 1960s, after he was shamed, but interestingly, never imprisoned, the one career he seemed to be able to find was professor of elementary education. So for about 30 years from the 1960s until he retired, Bill Ayers was a professor of elementary education in Chicago, and his entire platform was the place for communism in the modern American system was the elementary school. He taught over 4,000 future teachers during his career, and he taught them that way, that what you must do is use the classroom like this. And how about the NEA? How about the National Education Association? How about the largest, most political union we have in this country? As early as 1947, when American GIs had just come home from war, making theoretically the world safe for democracy, right? The NEA was saying things like this, 1947. Far too many people in America both in and out of education, look upon the elementary school primarily as a place to learn reading, writing, and arithmetic. Still, in 1947, far too many of us actually thought the NEA is lamenting. that the primary purpose of the schools was to teach kids basic subjects. By 1948, what is the purpose of this? Education for international understanding. It involves the use of education as a force for conditioning the will of the people. The purpose of these schools is to condition the will of children. Do you understand what the common and common core means? I asked you. Raise your hand if your kids or grandkids are common. It means that we will treat them so. We will not recognize your kids as individuals who have different abilities and aptitudes, who come from different backgrounds, who have different family situations. We will treat your kids as one kid. Look, if you're going to get 60 million American school kids to exactly the same place educationally, Is that going to be a higher place or a lower place? By definition, it has to be. Every time you raise standards, kids fall off. For 50 years, just like we've been fighting this war on poverty. $20 trillion since the mid-1960s, transferred from the haves to the haves nots You gotten rid of poverty? Have you mediated it in any significant way? It's the same thing with the war on education. We're going to spend all these resources trying to get the lowest performing kids up, and it's dawned on us now. This is the social justice part of what I'm talking about. It's dawned on us, the educational community now, that you can't pull up the lowest performing kids, but you sure can pull down the high ones. That's social justice. We can't fix the kids who can't or will not perform. We cannot fix that. But what we can do is we can hold artificially other people down in the name of justice. That's what the common in common core means. And what do I mean when I say outcome-based education? That is we're not concerned about where we meet the kids. We're not concerned where those kids are when they come to us in school. We're only concerned about when they're turned out that they become the same kid unilaterally. And look, do you understand what that is? That is socialism, right? It doesn't matter what your aptitude, your attitudes, your abilities are. It doesn't matter. Uh, what you are interested in or what your skill set is. What matters is when you come out of the educational machine, you will be the same kid as every other kid. In fact, that was one of the selling points of Common Core, right? Why wouldn't we want every kid in American schools everywhere, from Maine all the way down to Arizona and from Florida all the way up to Washington, why wouldn't we want every kid learning exactly the same thing on exactly the same day in exactly every school across the country? That's nonsense, Kids don't work, education doesn't work that like that. And what have you done to the teachers? There's a 25-year teacher, and, though, and you, look, you've taught your kids. We're all teachers. In fact, the most intimate, most important thing we do with our kids from the moment they're born, even before they're born, is to try to educate them. You play music for them in utero, right? You talk to them through mama, uh, mama's belly to try to get them linguistic, you spend your whole life teaching your kids to throw a curveball, to toe dance, whatever it is, right? How to clean up, their, make a hospital corner on their beds. We teach all the time. There is no more sacred thing that we have with these kids. And yet, you know, right, that your kids aren't the same. You can't educate your eldest daughter and your youngest son. They don't learn the same way. They don't get things. that They need different ways. And good teachers, mom and dad, you know this. Good teachers are the ones who know how to stop doing something if the kids aren't getting it. If, they can't, if the book is not making sense, to them, the curriculum doesn't work for them. If they're not listening to your instructions on how to throw that curveball, you come at it another way. But how do you do it as teachers when the whole thing is structured, ordered, and centralized this way? You can't. There's no ability. The best thing teachers have, and that includes parents, is creativity. The ability to recognize what their children are and move in ways that help them. You can't do that now in the classroom because of the inflexibility of it all. And how about by, you know what happened. between the Education, the NEA said in 1948, should be viewed as a force, primarily for conditioning the will of the children, conditioning the will of the people. By 1969, and you know what happened between 48 and 69 to your universities, right? That's when they became the Marxist places they now are, in many instances. The home of much of this. By 1969, here's what the NEA said schools will become clinics whose primary purpose is to provide individualized psychosocial treatment for the student. And teachers must become psychosocial therapists. This, in 1969, is what now is in your schools. It's called social-emotional learning, SEL. This is a huge component. It's not technically Common Core, but it's one of the things we were all warning you, and you got some great activists here today who've been fighting across the state for four or five years. We've been telling people this, that Common Core, whatever else it was, it was low standards, it was collectivized outcome-based education. And by the way, that's true now. Look at even their own tests. Uh, Our kids are going backwards under Common Core. By every statistical measure that we have, it's not working. But even worse than the low education, Common Core was a Trojan horse to begin to import this kind of stuff, turn the classroom into an arena where teachers, with all due respect, who have no training in sociology or psychology, teachers have to identify from your kids' comments their demeanor, their posture in class as they sit in their seats, the comments they make, the attitudes they bring to their learning... SEL, social emotional learning, a program called PBIS where teachers are required to spend hours every week importing into your kid's record data on the behavior of their classrooms. What are the kids doing? What are they saying? When we bring up controversy, why are we putting such controversial topics in front of little kids? Because then teachers have to record how they react to them. Schools will become clinics. Clinics whose purpose is to provide individualized psychosocial treatment for the student. And teachers have to become these... Well, teachers have a much diminished teaching role now. So what are they filling the time with, right? That's Arnie Duncan. Why have I told you? Now we, now we jump to today. Why have I told you all this? Because you have to recognize, as difficult as it is, That what you're seeing in American government schools now is not something out of the blue. If you recognize that going back, and if you give me another hour, I'll show you 40 more slides like this. Going back 150, 175 years, that the educrats in charge of overseeing our schools have had exactly this worldview. Does that mean that all your teachers agree with that? Of course not. We've had many good teachers, and we still do in Common Core classrooms. I have a lot lot of teachers who tell me, you know, in my math classes in fourth grade, 10 minutes every day I close my classroom door and I teach the kids the multiplication tables, even though Common Core says you shouldn't, right? But it's become a subversive thing. Things that teachers are terrified to teach kids methods that aren't Common Core because it'll cost them. The only way we're testing it, now, up to today, let me show you what I just showed you, let me show you in the last 10 years, your school officials talking about it. That's Arnie Duncan. He's the Secretary of Education under Barack Obama. And as early as March 2009, Obama was inaugurated January 2000, right? Nine, as, er, within a few months, less than a year, what happened? Arnie Duncan is gonna to talk to you about, on the Charlie Rose Show, the way he sees American schools have to go.
2: I think our schools should be open 12, 13, 14 hours a day. So it's not just lengthening. So to eight to eight or something like that? At home, we attached healthcare clinics to about two dozen of our schools, where schools truly become the centers of the community great things happen. And this is a chance to really create what I think the 21st century school has to look like. This needs to be the norm, not the exception. Time matters tremendously and all of our families need our doors open longer. Is this a big ticket item in terms of financial resources? Uh, finances is a piece of this and you, we again have significant financial resources, unprecedented financial resources coming to the table. But Let me be clear, this is thinking differently and being creative.
1: We need our schools open 12, 13, 14 hours a day, seven days a week. We need them open. When our schools, we're building healthcare clinics onto our new school construction. When schools become the centers of the community, let that sink in. Not the local police departments or the city hall, not the family home is not the center of the community. We want these schools to become the centers of the community. Right? We want them open all the time. We're building health, and already, you know, Schools all across the Green Bay, Wisconsin, um, Memphis, Tennessee, federal grants going to schools in all those districts and lots more to feed kids breakfast, lunch, and dinner all year, and not just during the school year. Memphis, Green Bay won federal grants, your money, taxpayer money, to feed kids breakfast, lunch, and dinner all summer long when the school's out. And the argument is, is that if we feed your kids three meals a day, nine months of the year, when we turn them over to you in the summer, you won't feed them or you won't feed them right. And it's even worse than that. Both of these school districts, places in Arkansas have won. California's won these grants, too. The argument is, and this is what I mean by social justice, it's not fair to only feed the low-income kids. If you're only feeding the kids who need it, you're stigmatizing them. If you're only feeding kids who can't feed themselves theoretically, then you're making those kids feel bad by singling them out. So in all these school districts I just mentioned, they have kids making kids whose families make a million dollars are getting free breakfast, lunch, and dinner all year round in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Why? Because it will make the other kids feel bad. Do you see what's happening here? What is he talking about? Do you really want health care clinics on your new school construction? He's exactly right. That was in 2009. It's the norm now for, for new schools. One way, one reason why take uh, the, the Obama health care law. Whether you know it or not, under the healthcare law, schools are enabled to give your daughters birth control, including the morning after abortion pill, at ages 12, 13, and 14, without consulting you. They don't have to consult you now, legally don't have to consult you. So what happens? You have a school administrator, a 14-year-old, 15-year-old girl may require something, something's happened. It's awfully unseemly for a school administrator to drive your daughter someplace to get her something. If you've got these, your your 13-year-old daughters show up to school with a couple of mydol or aspirin. They can be suspended for that. But the schools are now building clinics onto the new school construction. Why? Go back to 1969, right? The schools have to become clinics. What's going on here? And by the time he left office, Arne Duncan, in 2015, within six months he had left. He served about seven years under Obama's uh, uh, leadership. On his way out, here's what Arne Duncan said the next step has to be. The one idea I threw out that I uh, wanted to sort of road test it with the kids,
2: they is the idea of public boarding schools. And that's a little bit of a you know, different idea or a controversial idea. But the question is, do we have some children where there's not a mom, there's not a dad, there's not a grandma, there's just nobody home. You know, there are certain kids we should have 24-7.
1: Public boarding schools. Go back to Horace Mann. Even he knows it's a controversial idea, but do you hear what he just said? First of all, do we in this country, do we actually have an epidemic of eight-year-olds living alone in brownstones? But let's pretend for the sake of the liberal imagination, you know, extensive as it is, let's pretend it's true. Do you not have county agencies? Do you not have state agencies? Do you not have religious agencies in almost every community that are set up to handle those things? Why in the world do you need a federal boarding school? Are there some of your kids that we need all the time? And do you really think, let's just say for the sake of argument, and if Hillary Clinton had won the election, you'd be a lot closer to this now. Do you really think that once we get this system of public boarding schools in place, that they're only going to take kids left on their own? What happens if you send your kids to an LL, because this is rapidly happening already. What happens if, you, if your kid shows up in middle school with the idea that marriage is between a man and a woman? And the government school adamantly denies that. In fact, sees your opinion, the, the biblical opinion that they learned in the household, sees that as bullying. At what point do these, these, these public boarding schools? Because the, every other country that's tried them has done it. Whether you're talking about the Nazis, you talk talking about the Soviets, right? The per, what's one of the primary purposes? What's at stake here? That's Bill Gates. He paid for it. Uh, see, again, the federal government was smart. The infrastructure of Common Core was not necessarily primarily federal-funded, much of it, because that way you could really make no claims about it. But as far as Gates goes, again, $7 billion of his own uh, money he used to fund laptops, to fund curriculum change, to help bring uh, the new Common Core pedagogy, to, to fly in experts to school districts all across the country, to tell them why Common Core was so wonderful... You also were told, Utah, that Common Core was higher than the standards that you had. These are great standards. They're high. Well, listen to the guy who founded them, right, who funded them. What did he say about that? It would be great if our education stuff worked, uh, but that we won't know know for probably a decade. Right. So in 2011, 2012, when the standards really first hit, he said, the guy who paid for it, we're not going to even know if it works for 10 years. Call us back in 2011. In fact, how long did it take us to realize No Child Left Behind was a failure? Exactly 10 years. 10 years after No Child Left Behind was inaugurated, right? we gave up on it. These things aren't designed to be proven to work. They're using your kids as guinea pigs. The guy who paid for it just told you, we're not even going to work for 10 years. And can I ask you, what are his educational credentials? What qualifies him to do this? This is the thing that's so shocking. He has no accountability to you and me. He's doing it. Can you imagine if it were the evil Koch brothers or some other right-wing billionaire who spent all that money to completely transform American schools? Would it not be on the front page of every Utah newspaper that rogue billionaire buys public education? But because uh, ultra-progressives do it, we don't hear a word about it. Where's the accountability? Where's the complaint about uh, outside entities corrupting our schools? You don't hear that when it's people like him. It's even better than that. Did you know that in 2008-9, when the outgoing Republican President Bush and the incoming Democrat President Obama told us, if we didn't cough up billions and billions of dollars in stimulus funds, taxpayer stimulus funds, cars, banks, everything was going to go out of business, did you know because it's going to be right here. Did you know that about seven, uh, $6 billion of that, mo- of that money, about $6 billion of the stimulus, went directly back to the Department of Education to begin to create the tests for Common Core? As early as 2009, again, a couple months after President uh, Obama took over, a couple months, already Bill Gates is going to remind you that $350 million of the stimulus package has gone to the Department of Education to create the, exa- the exams for Common Core. In other words... Before the standards were written, they were writing the tests. Do you understand what that means? That these are not educational standards. What are they measuring here? Listen to Gates on this.
3: We'll only know if this effort has succeeded when the curriculum and tests are aligned to these standards. Secretary Arnie Duncan recently announced that $350 million of the stimulus package will be used to create just these kinds of tests. Next generation assessments aligned to the common core. When the tests are aligned to the common standards, the curriculum will line up as well.
1: That's powerful, right? So did you know that right away that stimulus money was being fed right back to the Department of Education to create the exams? There was no common core standards in 2009. They didn't have them yet. But they were writing the tests with that money. And it wasn't Gates who was writing it, it was the federal government who was writing them. In other words, those standards, when they were finally backwritten, were backwritten to fill the tests that were already there. That's why it's a federal takeover. That's who, whoever, you understand, he just said it. Whoever controls the tests controls the classroom. We won't know if our common core standards are gonna work until the curriculum lines up with the tests. And when these tests are implemented, The curriculum will have to follow. And and yet, you could walk into almost any Utah public school tomorrow, well, Monday, and ask them, and they'll tell you the standards were state-led. The standards are higher than what we have. They're just a set of standards. Our teachers are free to teach whatever they want. You just heard what he said. It gets even better. That's David Coleman. In a way, it's probably good you didn't eat breakfast yet. That's David Coleman. He is the architect of Common Core. He is the man most responsible for organizing a group of about five primary people who wrote the standards, and he has no educational experience, no degree in education, he's never taught a classroom, he's never been an educator. Why was he put in this job in 2008 and 2009? Because he helped Obama uh, on the social media side. He contributed to the Obama campaign's revolutionary use of social media to help get younger people to vote for him. That's his only credential. And listen as David Coleman is introduced to a group of teachers who he is now the boss of.
4: He has been involved in virtually every step of setting the national standards, and he doesn't have a single credential for it. (laughs) He's never taught in an elementary school, I think. I actually don't know. Uh, He's uh, never edited a scholarly journal, but I think he has written scholarly papers. Uh, And a variety of other things that, you know, everybody here has done some of, he hasn't done. You'd think someone with Lauren's experience would understand you never tell the truth when you're introducing someone. I actually think it's really important to try to base what I'm about to say to you on evidence I share with you rather than on the sands of my qualifications. So if I ask you or talk to you about doing something,
1: it should be evident that it makes sense to you to do, because I have no other authority. Because I have no other authority. I have no credentials. This is the guy who almost single-handedly overseen the, saw the transformation of your kids' classrooms, and he has not a single credential for it. You remember what the teacher just said? He has been involved in almost every aspect of the creation of these standards. I thought the states did it. I thought teachers did it he didn't it gets even better remember john gruber who was indicted for embezzlement right well he's too. he's he's raked in about four billion four million from the federal government for overseeing common core again let this sink into he has never been elected to public office you the taxpayer who fund these schools that's why they're not public schools anymore you have no control over him what can you do what can you do to get how can you have any input on what he does when entire groups of teachers blindly follow him, even though he's not an elected official, even though he has no education uh, experience. Listen to this, talking about his own organization, Student Achievement Partners.
4: So with that in mind, I'm about to jump in, but I'm just gonna say one word about my own organization, which is Student Achievement Partners. Student Achievement Partners, all you need to know about us are a couple of things. One is we're composed of that collection of unqualified people who were involved in developing the common standards.
1: We are composed of that collection of unqualified people who wrote the standards. That's pretty amazing. What blows me away about this, I I should be home with my wife and dogs, honestly, because the people who did this to you, they told you. It's not a secret. Everything you're hearing today is from the mouths of the people who've done that. And this information's been available for six years. But you didn't get to hear it. The American people don't get to hear it. This is what I call banana republic stuff. Unelected, unaccountable people with no qualifications being given authority to completely transform this country from the outside in. That is remarkable. And it gets better. Again, as a 25-year teacher, the, law, the lie that bothers me the most is the lie that they're just, oh, come on, you conservatives. You're all about standards, hypocrites. Why wouldn't you want higher Well, they're not higher standards. Bill Gates just told you that. But worse than that, they're just a set of standards, Pesto. Teachers can reach them a thousand different ways. Why are they threatening? Can they? Listen to what David Coleman said about that. Which is teachers
4: will teach towards the test. There is no force strong enough on this earth to prevent that. There's no amount of hand-waving. There's no amount of saying they teach to the standards, not the test. We don't do that here. Whatever.
1: That's pretty shocking. There is no force strong enough on this earth to stop your public school teachers to teaching to my tests. None. None. And you, you could take this video and you could walk into the superintendent's office tomorrow and you could show it to him, and they'll still look you in the eye and say our teachers are free to teach how they want. But they're not. Because these standardized... And you understand this, right? You're going to give one test to 60 million American school kids... That test, psychometrically, can't tell a teacher in a classroom anything. When you're dealing with data, aggregate data, on a level that big, it has no practical purpose for a teacher and the kids that she teaches. Furthermore, did you know teachers don't write those tests? Did you also know teachers don't get to see the tests? Did you know that? What? The entire education system has been hijacked at the federal level by these exams that were written before the standards. Your kids, your teachers are on the gun, under the gun to get the kids to perform on those tests. And if they don't, changes happen. Your teachers realize that the teaching to the test is meaningless. The kids don't learn anything. doesn't matter. Teachers can't go off the script unless they close their door and pray nobody finds out about it. And even if they do manage to give your kids 10 minutes of real math, that will never appear on your kid's test. And even if the tests were meaningful, your teachers never get to see them. What kind of a system is it when the whole thing is predicated on tests that the teachers who teach your kids don't write, don't see, and don't grade? If they can't see them, they don't grade them. What's the purpose of it all? And you know what the purpose of those tests is? Aggregate data collection. Do you know how much data they're raking in on your kids? You've got a facility here in Utah, right, that they built to house a lot of that data. That's the purpose of this. A push. You'll love this. Not only is David Coleman, was he the, the unqualified overlord of your Common Core, as soon as the Common Core was set in stone, like David J- Jonathan Gruber, he left the Common Core people. And guess what he's doing now? He is the CEO and president of the college boards, responsible for the exams your kids have to take to get into college now. Now he, with no educational experience, is changing uh, and has a hand in changing the SATs and the ACTs to conform to his Common Core standards. Did you know that? Oh, it's even better than that. Not only is he in charge of making sure that 10, 20 years down the road, your kids will have to study Common Core to take those tests, but also he is in charge of all the advanced placement courses your kids take in high school. The college board is in charge of the advanced, and advanced placement's popular. What kid wouldn't want to do it? Juniors and seniors in high school. They can take a advanced placement history course, US history course, for a hundred bucks. They take the course, they, they take a test, and then they completely opt out of their college history exam, their college history requirement. In other words, your kid can take an advanced placement American history course his senior year in high school and not have to take any American history ever again in college. Rather than spending $4,500 for a college history class, 100 bucks should get it out of the way. So in other words, these classes are wildly popular, which means that kids are taking them. But here's another thing. Who controls the tests? The college board. Whose tests do you have to pass to cl- to clep out of those classes in college? His tests now. And are you surprised to learn that David Coleman is now changing the way the tests look? Two years ago, he started, not surprisingly, of all the subjects that AP covers, he started with American history. There is rising alarm over radical changes that have been made to the new Advanced Placement AP History Program, a program heavily supported by federal and state funding. In other words, Utah, you're paying David Coleman to change your kids' history lessons. To summarize, the private college board is rewriting its AP courses, starting with AP U.S. History, APUSH. The new APUSH framework departs radically from the traditional AP course and now reflects a progressive philosophy and leftist bias. Forget the founding fathers and the principles of the Declaration of Independence that proclaim the natural rights and freedoms of self-government and concentrate instead on the racist cultural imperialism that supposedly built America. That's social justice, right? Why do you think people are kneeling now? Why do you think sixth grade soccer team kneeled yesterday? Why do you think ninth grade basketball players, girls basketball players, are kneeling in school now? Because this is how they're teaching your kids history. Do you understand? Why are we tearing down statues? Not just of Confederates, but now Lincoln's being vandalized, Jefferson's being hooded. University of Virginia, the university Jefferson founded. Is now the students have covered Jefferson's statue with a hood, right? Because of course he's a unrepentant racist. Where do you think that's coming from? The advanced placement history exams no longer are fact based. When asked, three over 300 liberal, primarily liberal progressive history professors at universities sent a letter to David Coleman, begging him not to do this. To which he responded, "Facts aren't all that important in history anyway." That was David Coleman's response. Ignore, this. his new AP framework now ignores all previous state history standards, all or most of which actually were pretty, even California's state history standards prior to David Coleman were actually pretty fair, pretty fact-based, not anymore. The Declaration of Independence is not covered in this AP history course. Adams, Madison, not mentioned. The only mention of Jefferson comes in the context of slavery, not mentioned, right? and here's what I just told you, to professorial, to objections, that students will learn an an accurate version of American history, the college board, Coleman, responded that facts aren't all that important anyway. What is important are historical thinking skills, such as contextualization and crafting historical arguments. Kids before Coleman used to take a history test that asked, it was very much like the civics test. What is our this? What are our legislative branches? How do you break down the government? How many senators are there? That kind of stuff. Now, it's essays. And from last year's test, write a 500-word essay on the institutional racism that founded America. I'll show you. Here. This is from the preferred textbook for AP history. It's called Out of Many. And I love the title of that. Out of Many. What did they leave off? One. That's typical of this, right? It's not out of many, one. It's not i pluribus unum. It's out of many. Uh, You can see in the title of the book where they're going. George Washington, it would probably not surprise you to learn, gets one paragraph in the entire textbook, the AP textbook. Here's what it says about George Washington. Although he dressed in plain American broadcloth at his inauguration and claimed to be content with a plain Republican title, Washington was counted among the nationalists. He was anything but a man of the people. By nature reserved and solemn, he chose to ride about town in a grand carriage drawn by six horses and escorted by uniformed liverymen. In the tradition of British royalty, he delivered his addresses personally to Congress and received from both an official reply. That's it. No, No revolutionary war, no Thanksgiving Day prayer, no none of it. He was a nationalist. He was no better than King George. He was a royalist, right? He was not a man of the people. That's the idea your kids get at George Washington. By the way, that's it for George Washington. Bill Clinton's administration gets about 64 pages. And the Obama inauguration, inauguration gets 24 pages. What they're doing, and, and it makes sense, right? Where are, a little bit further here. So that was two years ago. Last year, Not surprised. Notice he doesn't start with chemistry, doesn't start with math, starts with history. Last year, it was the European History Advanced Placement course. The new Advanced Placement European History Framework has received a makeover that eliminates religion's influence on the development of Western civilization. You got that right. 2,000 years of Western civilization. The rise and fall of the Catholic Church, the well, the rise and then the Protestant Reformation, and then the rise of Christianity, the influence of Christianity for 2,000 years is not mentioned once in the European history framework. You're, how do you study history 1,000 years ago? How do you study history 500 years ago? How do you study the history of the founding fathers when Christianity is not mentioned It eliminates religion's influence on the development of Western civilization, it completely ignores Winston Churchill, it whitewashes the evils of communism, and it lauds the welfare state, according to Professor David Randall with the National Association of Scholars. It's a group of professors. Quote, the new curriculum omits the development of faith and freedom in European history and focuses on the development of the welfare state. The, all right, that's what, that, according to Randall, the last sentence, quote, this new framework warps and guts the history of Europe to make it serve today's progressive agenda. Virtually all mention of religion in the 19th century, too, is, a, is removed. And uh, several key figures, such as Christopher Columbus, Winston Churchill, are not mentioned at all in the College Board's framework. David Coleman, the president of the College Board, was a major architect of the Common Core Standards under the Obama administration. Quote Here's an, another examination. The College Board's new AP European History curriculum quote, defines civilization around secularism, the state, and all with a thin support of intellectual history. It uses words like capitalism rather than free markets to note how consumers and capitalists work against the environment. It gives the sense that the Industrial Revolution contributed more to poverty than to prosperity, and it whitewashes the repressive Marxist and Soviet histories of Eastern Europe. Right, that's what our kids... And you understand this? Why do the tests matter? Your kids want for $100 to save 4500 They want to get these college credits. Conservatives really... And Republicans are pushing these kids. Don't take these college courses from these radical lefties. Take it in high school, right? Good, yes, but now what? What's because the tests have changed. Guess what has to happen? The teaching of history in the classroom has to change. You can't have kids fork up 100 bucks and give up a year of their senior year studying this stuff only to fail the tests. So you got it, right? These books now are replacing traditional history textbooks because if that's what the test says, history teachers have to change the way they teach history. That's David Coleman, one of the five, five or six people who wrote Common Core. Not to me, that, not, that's Jason Zimba. He is the guy under David Coleman who wrote the math standard, primarily responsible for your kids' bad math standards. And in this short video clip, he is going to admit on camera that his math program is not going to prepare your kids for selective colleges, and it's not going to prepare your kids for STEM careers. STEM careers. Science, technology, Engineering and math, you know, all the unimportant things. His math program, he's going to tell you, won't prepare them. What is the purpose, then, of creating a math curriculum that 60 million American school kids now are laboring under if its purpose is not to prepare you for college math or to prepare you for STEM careers? Listen to this. And he's being interviewed here, interestingly, by Sandy Stotsky... Sandy is a, 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 one of the foremost education, uh, educators in the, war, in the country. She's retired now, retired professor. She was hired, she's been here, right? Yeah, you've had San, Sandy's been to your state trying to warn your ed, administrators about Common Core. She uh, was hired by Common Core to evaluate the standards. She and a math professor who was hired, Jim Milgram of California, they both said, get rid of it. It's a disaster, the math is insufficient. The English standards are a nightmare. What did the Common Core people do who hired them? They just wrote them out of the document. They ignored what they said, and they, va- they validated their own standards. So Sandy has been traveling the country. She's been to your... Do Mil- you have Milgram here, too? Milgram testified to the- He testified before your... La- Milgram did a lot of the math. He's a stan- retired... I think he's retired now. Stanford University math professor, who did a lot of the, the math that got us to the moon in the late 60s. Big-time guy. He said the math standards were wholly and completely inadequate but they validated them anyway. So here's Dr. Stotsky interviewing Jason Zimba about his own math curriculum.
3: The definition of college readiness, I think it's a fair critique that it's a minimal definition of college readiness. for some.
1: I think it's a fair critique, Dr. Stotsky. It is a minimal definition of college readiness. Listen to that
3: again. The definition of college readiness, I think it's a fair critique that it's a minimal definition of college readiness. For some colleges well for for the colleges most kids go to but not that most parents probably aspire right the,
4: it's not for stem it's not for international that's true it's not for, it's not
3: only not for I mean, stem it's amazing. also not for selective colleges
1: my math program is not only like this is a benefit of it right it's not only not for stem it's not for selective colleges he's going to cute it up a little bit he's going to say next for instance if your kid wants to go to berkeley uc berkeley he better have precalculus fair enough but you understand right that a selective college Simply means any math, any college that has a basic math entrance examination requirement. They all do. They're all selective. All colleges select on the basis of math grades. They, of course, they do. So not only is my career, my college, my math program going to prepare you for STEM careers, it won't let you get into the, the particularly the selective colleges, which is
3: to say all of them. I won't stop at this time. Agreement that I believe we have on okay. this. Thank you. Um, Thank you. The the definition of college readiness i think it's a fair critique that it's a minimal definition of college readiness for and,
5: some colleges
3: well for for the colleges most kids go to but not that most parents probably aspire right that
4: it's not for stem it's not for international that's true it's not for, it's not only not for I mean, stem it's also
3: not for selective colleges that for example uc berkeley even whether you're going to be an engineer or not you better have precalculus right. to get into super right. We C. have Berkeley, to think of our right?
4: engineering colleges and, that's, and scientific. That's true. I think the third
3: pathway goes goes a lot towards that. But your 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 issue is really broader than that. Oh yes. So I just oh, wanted yes. to make, make sure that we got that. I'm out. I'm not
4: just thinking of selective colleges. There's mm-hmm. a much broader question here.
3: That's right. It's it's both. I think, um, in in the sense of being clear about what this college readiness does and doesn't get you, and that's the big subject. Doesn't. But not
4: to call something college-ready when it only applies mm. to a certain kind of college and a certain lower level of mathematical expertise that won't buy you far on the international And
1: all he can do is shake his head yes. If you think I've edited, I'll send you this video so you can see that I just didn't selectively edit, edit it. He, he beclowns himself much worse. one point, he actually concedes in the interview that my math program might, might prepare talented kids for math at a two-year technical college. That's what this is geared at. But you heard him, right? What is the purpose of any math curriculum? He's he's even saying it himself. What this curriculum of mine will and won't get you? Why wouldn't you create a math program that is guaranteed to make sure that the most mathematically able kids move forward? This is a math curriculum designed for people like me. When I was in third grade, I had a second grade math ability. Forty years later, I still have a second grade math ability. You're not, this isn't going to help me. You pulling down the high-achieving kids was not going to make me better at math. But I, when I was in third grade, I also had a 12th grade reading level. Maybe that's why I entered the high finance world of English professor, right? Because I could read really well. My math was... I could get by in math, right? Enough. I married a woman who can do math. That's about the extent of it. But the point here is I was not good at it. I don't think that way. But I was good at something else. And I was allowed to read 12th grade books in third grade, Right? But that's gone now, because that's socially unjust. You know, We have lost more gifted and talented programs for kids in our high schools in the last two years than in the previous 50 years combined, because there is no room for it. Did you know last year alone, over 150 school districts nationally removed calculus from the course offerings? You remember when you went to school, right? What percentage of kids in your high school were actually able to do calculus? 10%, 8%, really low, because calculus is hard. That's not an insult to me. The fact that your kids can do, get, could get to calculus and I couldn't, that's not an insult to me, but to them it is. And so why are we pulling calculus off? Calculus was always only going to be taken by a small percentage of kids. So why are we removing it? Because it is socially unjust for some kids to reach calculus and others not. That's as simple as it goes, right? This is what I mean when I say you are laboring under social justice education, that the primary purpose of your kids' education is not excellence, is not achievement. It is some weird, perverse notion of equality holding me down to third-grade readings. What would that have done? if, In third grade, I had to read third-grade books. What would it have done to that one thing that I could do? And by the way, if you're math talented in third, fifth, eighth, eleventh grade, and you are being forced to do math in non-mathematical ways, what will that do to your love of math? You've seen, certainly seen, some of these common core math problems. And the thing that strikes me, strikes me is it is math problems for people who don't like math. A lot of words, a lot of pictures, a lot of drawings, right? But not a lot of real numbers. Again, that's fine for me, right? Maybe you'll bump my, my math capacities up half a grade level by the time it's all said and done. But what will you do to those kids who are innately mathematic? It's not outrageous to point this out. We're teaching math to kids as if they were good readers, not good mathematicians. What would have happened to my love of reading if instead of reading books, you had me read equations in English class? Do you see what would have happened to me? Now, would, would me reading equations in English class have helped the, the, the kids who are struggling to read? No. But would it have held me right down with the other kids my age? Absolutely. That's what this is all about. And again, from the mouth Of the person who did it. And you know who agreed with me about the insanity of these tests? You know who agreed with me about the inappropriateness of these tests? That guy did before he became president. In 2007, one year before the election, there he is. And and of course, how ironic. Addressing the NEA, the National Education Association, about how utterly worthless these standardized tests were. Here's Obama.
0: Don't tell us. That the only way to teach a child is to spend too much of a year preparing him to fill out a few bubbles in a standardized test. We know that's not true.
1: Don't tell me that that's the way to educate your kids. And yet one year later, that's the system he oversaw. Where your kid's entire education now is dedicated to and dependent on those stupid bubbles on a great big national test. One year. And the same NEA, you see how they're cheering him? The NEA seems to get it, right? No more standardized tests. And if that's true, then you break up the federal monopoly, you drop everything back down to the states, and then you tell your state you daughter get out of education, and then you make it a family and a district issue where that's all controlled internally. Now, you know that's not going to happen. But if you take his advice here, it all starts with those tests. And then one year later, surprise, 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 all that's thrown out the window, right? I saw, how bad are these standardized? How, they're not just bad. The, tests, a lot of the test questions are badly written, the, the, the information they're asking, to the degree that we've been able to see them. They're nasty, and I'll, sh- we, I'll show you that in a minute. But how bad are these ridiculous standardized tests when the imported... Have you noticed on TV... How many foreigners we've given talk show to? English people, Australians, Canadians coming down taking show. This is the guy who replaced John Stewart. He's a British, John Oliver. Some, Hollywood has seemed to figure out that if we bring in foreign people to tell us how stupid we are, maybe we'll change our ways. But this is John Oliver who replaced John Stewart. Here he is, radical lefty, talking about just how meaningless and worthless these standards How bad are they if the left even is beginning to see it?
5: If standardised tests are bad for teachers and bad for kids, who exactly are they good for? Well, it turns out they're operated by companies like all these. And let's just focus on the largest one, Pearson. As of 2012, they had nearly 40% of the testing market, almost triple their nearest competitor. And if you've never heard of them, then congratulations. But... Just mention their name to any parent or teacher in a state they operate in, and you see what happens. A hypothetical girl could take Pearson tests from kindergarten through at least eighth grade... Uh, tests, by the way, that she studied for using Pearson curriculum and textbooks taught to her by teachers who were certified by their own Pearson test. If at some point she was tested for a learning disability, like ADHD, that's also a Pearson test. And if she eventually got sick of Pearson and dropped out, well, she'd have to take the GED, which is now, guess what, also a Pearson test. Their track record is littered with complaints concerning technical glitches, slow grading, and even the contents of their tests. Take, take what happened in New York just a few years ago.
4: Almost 30 different test questions have now been declared invalid because they're confusing or have outright errors. They'd already pulled six questions from an English exam related to a bizarre passage about a talking pineapple. Students had to answer questions about the story, which they say goes like this. A pineapple challenges a hare to a race. Other animals figure the fruit has a trick up its sleeve, but the hare wins and the animals eat the pineapple. It ends with the moral, pineapples don't have sleeves.
3: I was really confused because uh, I expected a lot more from them. That article about the pineapple and the hair was stupid and absurd.
1: First of all, did you hear what the, the, the reporter said? According to the students, this is what the question said, because we can't see the tests. Mom and dad, you send your kids to these government schools. You are not allowed to see the tests they take. Just if you listen to nothing else I tell you, that right there should convince you that this is a big, dangerous thing that you're doing, having them take those tests. You are not allowed to see them. The only way we know about that question is because a lot of kids in a lot of states griped about it. And here's the question, right? A pineapple challenges a hare to a race. The other animals think that the pineapple has a trick up its sleeve, and so they bet on the pineapple. But the hare wins the race, and the animals eat the pineapple. The moral of the story is, pineapples don't have sleeves. In other words, as I try to suggest to you, this test is not measuring reading. It's measuring how quick your kids get frustrated. It's measuring how quick your, this is the cycle, that social, emotional, psychological data garbage. These tests are actually constructed to see how fast your, your kids quit taking them, to frustrate them, to pull them back, to measure all sorts of input that has nothing to do with genuine education. And, it, and go back to Pearson Publishing. I teach at the University of Wisconsin. And one of the, uh, Wisconsin requires all high school English teachers to teach Shakespeare. So the kids have to take my Shakespeare class, education majors. They're telling me this semester that they cannot get their, their student teachers will not give them their competency to be able to move on unless Pearson Publishing comes to their high schools and watches them teach it and approves it. Pearson Publishing is a private publishing house, it's not an educational wing, it's just a publisher. Now, my kids in Wisconsin can't get their teaching certification unless Pearson Publishing okays their student teaching, which means teachers, my student teachers, have to teach Shakespeare according to their plan, which is Common Core. Why are we letting a private company like Pearson into our schools to determine whether or not our kids are allowed to teach in the first place? And Pearson, they own 100% of the Canadian textbook market. They own almost 80% now of the American textbook market. And did you know this too? The federal government for the last couple years has been, two years ago, the last I looked at, two years ago, the federal government paid Pearson publishing $350 million to create tests and materials. By the way, that's their job. They would have done it anyway. The feds paid Pearson $350 million to create all this stuff. Pearson then turned around and sold it to your schools in Utah and kept the money. Now, that's the definition of crony capitalism, right? What does Pearson get? Almost a monopoly on our kids' schools, our classrooms. Pearson is deciding, at least in Wisconsin, whether or not teachers will teach. And for that, your federal government's paying them, and they're making things they otherwise would have made, selling them and keeping the profits. That's crony capitalism, right? And this is pretty interesting, too. If I'm right about this, why? Then who grades the tests? Teachers don't. Would it surprise you to learn that states are taking out $9 an hour ads on Craigslist for people to come in off the streets and grade your kids' tests.
4: The company posted this ad to Craigslist. It's to find people to grade the exams. We looked at an essay every two minutes, a short answer every five seconds, every 10 seconds. We don't understand your kids. We don't understand anyone's kids. I was told when I was beginning a project that last year, you know, there were a certain amount of twos, a certain amount of threes, a certain amount of fours. We expect that to be similar this year. If that's not similar, they will tell you, we're scoring too many threes, we're scoring too many fours. And they'll say, you have to learn to see more papers as a three. You have to learn to see more papers as a four.
1: So they're bringing people off the street with no educational background, paying them $9 an hour to evaluate your kid's test, the tests on which your kid's and your teacher's whole career depends. Right? And again, 25-year teacher. I cannot grade an essay in two minutes been doing it for 25 years, can't do it. I can't grade a short answer in five seconds. So they're bringing in unqualified people, people so unqualified that they would be willing to do this work for $9 an hour. They're bringing people in who have no educational background, who need the money, clearly. They're giving them a 45-minute training session then they're giving them five minutes to read your kids' essays, essays that they study for all semester long, essays uh, that, that, that take hours and hours to write and prepare for, essays of five or a 1,000 words, and they're giving them five, two minutes to look at them, two minutes to look at them. And then the short answers, five seconds. How do you grade a short answer in five seconds? I'm almost done. Let me, I, I, he's going he's gonna to wave that hanky at me in a moment, so you'll be the first person that gets to ask, ask a question. If we, I'm almost done, so I can get this out there. So this is the problem, isn't it? And then you saw the second half of this. And even after they did all that, if the graders they brought in off the street weren't giving them the prearranged data breakdown that they wanted, they told them to change it. The whole thing is rigged. What does this have to do? Any of this have to do? Well, go back to 1947, right? You send your kids to school to learn reading and writing and arithmetic. They haven't believed that for a long, long time. And I hasten to remind you, does this, mean, this doesn't mean that your teachers are corrupt. What it means is, is that more in, many of your teachers walked away. Right? Many of the t- t- teachers in their late 50s and 60s who were close to retirement walked away from this. The other ones couldn't afford to. So as I have 4,500 letters from pr- teachers across the country, what can we do? Right? The, when, when Utah, when you took Common Core at the state level, the states, the, the, the deep, what do you call it here, the DPI, the Department of Instruction, whatever you call it here, they told all the superintendents, you get your schools in line with Common Core or you're going to have trouble with us. Superintendents, fearing for their jobs, went to all the principals in their districts and said, get your teachers on board or else. We'll remove you. Teachers then were in a situation where what do they do? Right? And so this is not a teacher issue. I wish more teachers would walk away, but it's a, you spent 20 years of your life teaching. You, your whole education is based on, educa- is on an education degree. How do you walk away from that? What can you do? $9 an hour, right? We don't understand your kids. We don't understand anybody's kids. And the coo- how much time do we have, sir? I just want to make sure. Five minutes, okay. The last part of this, I, I hasten to point out to you that you have to be careful. You do not, in Washington, D.C., you do not have a party that's on your side. <laughs> Donald Trump, as, as better as he is than Hillary Clinton would have been, he promised you he was going to get rid of Common Core. He promised you that he was going to get rid of the Department of Education. It ain't happening. Betsy DeVos, his Secretary of Education, is a nice woman, but she said four months ago, we don't have to get rid of Common Core. It's already gone. That's what she said, right? Betsy DeVos used her billion-dollar fortune in Michigan. She's a Michigander. She used her a lot of her money. So one of the reasons why she's in the job she's in now. She used a lot of her money over the last three years to keep Common Core in Michigan when Michigan moms and dads wanted it gone. She was on Jeb Bush's committee For Common Core, you may recall that Jeb Bush was one of the foremost advocates of Common Core. uh, And Bush has made a lot of money off of Common Core, and she was on his committee. Is she infinitely better? Don't get me wrong. Is she infinitely better than what we would have had? Absolutely, Better than Arnie Duncan, sure. But you're not going to fix these problems. And what you have to know is that in December of 2015, on a Friday, four days before Christmas, uh, yeah, four days before Christmas, when the Republicans controlled the, the Senate... And the House, they forced through, with nobody knowing it, the ESSA Act. It's Every Student Succeeds Act. Paul Ryan, Wisconsin, he gave his Republican caucus two days to read a 1,000-page bill before it was voted on and forced it through. The Republicans in the Senate and the House unanimously, almost unanimously ratified it. And you know what it does? The ESSA Act takes the worst most illegal aspects of Common Core from the Obama administration and indemnifies them, gives them protection and cover. The other thing the ESA Act does is, for the first time in American history, it sets a legal, enshrined-in-law precedent that the federal government has a primary say in education. I've only got a couple of minutes left. Let me go to the actual quotes here. Arne Duncan, when the Republicans passed this, called it a miracle. In a just-released, this is the same day it passed, in a just-released interview with Politico, Arne Duncan expressed stunned, surprised about how wonderful the ESSA Act turned out for progressive educrats. Quote, I'm stunned at how much better the bill ended up than either the House or the Senate bill going into conference. I had a Democrat congressman say to me that it is a miracle. He's literally never seen anything like it. If you look at the substance of what's there in the bill, embedded in the law are the values that we have promoted and proposed forever. The core of our progressive agenda from day one, it's all in the bill. For the first time in our nation's history, it is the letter of the law. So why did I show you Horace Mann and John Dewey and John Dunphy and the NEA and Rockefeller? And why did I show you the city? Because what these Democrats just recognized is that for the first time in American history, it is legal and appropriate and necessary for the federal government to lead in education, government schools, to set the agenda, to use its power to shape the states when it comes to this. And Republicans pass this through right, on four days before Christmas. I don't know what happens to Republicans. When they get to Washington, D.C., something happens. Not all of them, but enough of them. So my final comment to you, and I've got one minute left, and if it's okay, well, you, I'll let this gentleman make one quick comment because he had his hand up, but I'll say this. You are, in, you are, from a purely biblical perspective and from a common sense perspective, you, mom and dad, are the primary educators of your kids. It is inescapably true now that your kids are in danger in public schools. They just are. There's no, even if you're, you have good school, you think your school is good or his, my third grade teacher is wonderful, that's fine. And maybe they can do something to mediate some of this, but in the grand scheme of things, your kids are in a lot of trouble. You can take them to church every Sunday, twice a week. You can pray with them over dinner. You can do all sorts of things, send them to Sunday school. But if you keep your kids in these schools for eight hours a day for 15 years, you're going to lose them. Every single metric that we have shows it's true. 20, 20, 30 years ago, your kids got a relatively sane education and then went to college to get politicized. All Common Core is... Is the recognition that if, we, it, works at, if it works so well at the, uh, at the high school level, at the college level, what if we pull the education down? All right? So think about that. I'm done. Make quick comments, sir. Just throw it out there. I was just going to ask when
2: in the world did they stop the teachers
1: from grading tests? That's part of Common Core. That's new under Common Core. That's one new thing that's come under Common I don't mind if they don't grade the tests, the teachers. Not writing is a problem. Thank you very much for being here today.
2: is, okay, now what? Now there's great information. It's
1: like saying, my house is on fire, now what? Right? Hello. Okay, yeah. Well, I was asked to do this, and the problem with these talks is you can see just how much information there is. I've got about 48 more hours of stuff, if you ever want to see it. Um, So I can't do everything, and so I've decided when I have a limited amount of time, uh, what I want to do is wake people up to the broader issues. Having said that, I almost never have enough time to talk about what you can do. And I'm just going to take about three minutes, and I was asked to do this. So first of all, the first thing you have to do is take care of your children or your grandkids. Your job has got to be to make sure your child, your grandchildren, are getting the best possible education. Uh, That's the first thing. Whatever else, if you do that, it will be reckoned unto you, as the Lord says, right? Just do it. Beyond that, we all have our different abilities. Some of us can speak, some can write, some can write letters. You can all make phone calls to congressmen. You can be wary of politicians. You can, you have, can you share with your friends, uh, most of whom will have no idea what's going on in the public schools. That's my frustration. Six years into this, over 600 talks, what frustrates me is 90 95% of moms and dads haven't the vaguest idea that any of this is happening. None. So... Um, I mentioned up on the stage there that both from a biblical perspective, both from a um, logical common sense perspective, we have to look after our kids. We have to give them. We were just having a conversation about this with some homeschool moms and dads. Uh, I have never in my life ever met a homeschool mom or dad or a a mom or dad who has uh, struggled and sacrificed to put their kids in safe, private religious schools. I have never had a mom and dad ever regret doing that in all my years. I have heard from tens of thousands literally of moms and dads who regret not doing it. So, if we're working hard, we got mom and dad in the house working, we've got everybody's busting their humps to make a lot to make money to take care of those kids. In almost most instances, you know, I see moms and dads and the kids have Nike tennis shoes and they're in all sorts of extracurricular activities and they've got iPads and they've got their laptops and we're sacrificing a whole lot to give our kids stuff that they won't remember 40 years from now. What they will always remember is the education you gave them that allows them to look after their families. We're sacrificing on the front end for things that are transient, the things, that, the worldly things that aren't, they're not necessary. What is necessary is your kid's education, and I'll say this by way of closing. There are no safe spaces in the, in the public schools. You may have better and worse teachers. You, one grade may not be as bad as, third grade might have been okay, but fourth grade's gonna be worse. You also got to recognize that in 10 years, it's going to look a lot worse. 10 years ago, seriously, did you honestly believe we would have, as a nation, accepted homosexual marriage? Did you think 10 years ago that transgender bathrooms would be in your government schools? Try eight years. try It's only been about six years. How fast this can go downhill. And so the thing to do, I think, is to be prayerful about this but give your kids an education. And if you absolutely, absolutely, absolutely think you have to leave your kids in the public schools, then please spend an hour every night with them and simply say, show me. Show me what you did in math class today. And when, the, when he shows you, your children show you some goofy way of doing it, okay, I understand that your teacher wants you to do it that way. But here's another way. When you ask them, ask them what they learned in history class today. If what they learned is that George Washington was a nationalist, right, right, then you can explain to them the other side of the issue. So even if you think, I do not believe it's true, but even if you think you have no choice but to keep your kids in the public schools, then be active that way, right? Sit down and talk to them about what they're learning, how they're learning, what their worldview is. The nice thing about the internet is you can call up information on George Washington that's fantastic free of charge. You don't have to buy a lot of fancy curriculum. You don't have to go out and get textbooks. You don't have to get training for pedagogy. Just use your common sense. But if we're not willing to do at the minimum that, in the final analysis, we cannot complain. We have allowed our kids to go to these schools for a long time. Uh, and as the schools from year to year, decade to decade, take more control of our kids socially, psychologically, sexually, uh, as more of this happens, we, we've, it's like the frog in the blender, right? We've gotten more and more used to it. Uh, we are at the point now where there is no doubt what they're doing. And uh, if, if it's on us. They're not doing it to us anymore. We're allowing it to happen. So my thought would be, um, and, you know, talking to groups like this is always my favorite, whether when I talk to religious groups, because as you know, as religious people, and I've had the privilege, it really has been a privilege, uh, to teach LDS kids everywhere I've been. I've got some in Wisconsin. Um, You and I I know you know uh, the the very anti, the uncharitable way oftentimes non-LDS denominations talk but i got to tell you, the kids that I've had that have been LDS in all my different schools, whether in Oklahoma or Indianapolis or Wisconsin, they have been really good, solid Christian kids. And you know this, right, that as Christians, the problem is mostly spiritual. Uh, and there's no way in the world a government entity as big as the public schools are going to have anything but spiritual gloom to give you. So keep it in mind, and that would be my advice to you. Thank you.
0: And the Beta Sheeple narrative. Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. My email address is alpha male Buddhist at gmail.com. My website is alpha male Buddhist.podbean.com. And my subreddit is reddit.com forward slash r forward slash alpha male Buddhist. That's my subreddit where you can comment and interact with other listeners. And it's a great forum to sit and have an open dialogue. So again, thank you for listening and namaste.